Perhaps you've heard of the Wagner Group. They're Russian mercenaries. They claim they're not taking orders from Vladimir Putin, but I'm skeptical, and you should be too. At this moment, the Wagner Group is fighting on Putin's side in Ukraine, though not as effectively as many observers expected. Less well-known is the Mozart Group, mostly special operations soldiers from 11 countries who are training, advising, assisting, and equipping Ukrainians as they attempt to defend their independence and freedom against an imperialist and colonialist tyrant who also, by the way, regards America as his enemy. The Mozart Group is led by retired U.S. Marine Corps Colonel Andrew Milborn. His last assignment, Colonel Milborn served as the Deputy Commander of Special Operations Command Central, the headquarters responsible for all U.S. special operations in the Middle East. He's with us today, as is retired Admiral Mark Montgomery, Senior Director of FDD's Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation. I'm Cliff May. We're all pleased that you've decided to join us, too, here on Foreign Policy. Well, thanks for coming in, Colonel. How exciting it is to get to meet you and speak with you. Maybe start by introducing yourself to our listeners. Tell us a little about where you're born and raised and educated, why you've got a funny accent, uh, and how you got into the military. Yeah, Cliff, first of all, thanks very much for inviting me. And great to be in this august company. I'm not just simply blowing smoke. I actually worked with uh, Admiral Montgomery, who I'm going to call Mark throughout this interview, um, which I never had an opportunity to do before. And Danielle, thanks. Thanks for inviting me on. So I will, I absolutely am going to make a great effort not to bore your listeners with a long story. But it, yes, it's kind of an unusual past. I I went to school and law school in the UK and then ended up enlisting in the Marine Corps as a private, which caused my parents you know, so much consternation. I think they forgave me shortly before they passed on. Uh, but, you know, there are a couple of factors. And why in play. the U.S. military rather than the British yeah, military? Yeah, well, the British military had turned me down, which is the honest but short answer I had. I, I broke my leg playing rugby at college and uh, and failed. It's like the lowest possible physical categorization on the British Army's uh, military assessment. So I'm sure they could have got me for other things too, but they didn't have to get beyond that. Fast forward, I ran into a Marine recruiter in London. The, this is the 80s, so there were high schools. Remember, U.S. high schools throughout Europe. He probably had one quota a year, and I was it. And I'm sure he's still laughing. But I drove a very hard bargain. Remember, you had I just, American citizenship and I British. had U.S. Yeah, my mother was American. I hadn't been to the states, but father I just, British, yeah, mother American. I'd seen all the movies. <laughs> but uh, I drove an incredibly hard bargain. Remember, I just graduated law school. Mm. Uh, I was guaranteed PFC out of boot camp, and get this: and most Marines will understand the joke here, and guaranteed infantry. For, on the, on the basis, the yeah, on the basis of having been through law school, and subsequently I realized you only got infantry against your will, or I mean, you only got infantry coming in if something else had happened in your life, like too many tra- traffic tickets, or you smoke marijuana between your initial, you know, signing on on the paper and showing up for boot camp. And start before you tell us about your Mozart group. Tell listeners a little more than I did in the introduction about the Wagner Group. You know, we didn't. We didn't form the Mozart Group specifically as a counter to the Wagner Group. In fact, the name, the name kind of annoyed me when someone came up with it, but it already <laughs> gained traction. And I know better than to go against a brand. I would argue with different, probably than any other private military company you, you've heard of. 
to your point, the Wagner Group, benefit of the listeners who haven't seen many uh, programs about it, without exaggeration, the Wagner Group is a a proxy of the Russian government. I mean, you just have to look right. at how it is. It that's that's beyond the rumor stage. You know, when you get the the, the Russian foreign minister announcing as he did in Mali, as he has done in Ukraine, where and when the Mozart group is going to be operating, you can see that there's, there's no pretense there anymore. Uh, they, so they, but they still give the Russian government plausible den- deniability, which is another actually great phrase to get onto when we talk about the positive right. side of PMCs. Uh, and, you know, their track record is not good, both in areas of competence and their rank disregard of the law of armed conflict. And, and Mark, a little more on this, because tell me what you know, because a, a couple of things I've at least read. One is it's it's called the Wagner Group, despite the fact that Putin is saying, oh, we're fighting Nazis. Yeah. Wagner was Hitler's favorite composer, and that's why it's called the Wagner Group, I understand. They've been fighting in places like Syria and Mali. I heard that they initially were to come into Kiev and find uh, Volodymyr uh, Zelensky, the uh, the president, uh, and kill him and kill his, anybody around him, but they didn't succeed in that effort. Anything that strikes you that listeners should know about the Wagner Group? Well, it's interesting now as their leader, Yevgeny Prokhozhin, he's really been questioning the competence That's of the Minister of Defense and the uh, Garisimov, the head of the general staff. And, and I think it would have been a hard push to separate Putin from those two, you know, given their 20-year allegiance. But I believe the you know the head of the Wagner Group, along with the Chechen leader, the right. two of them together are really starting to push Putin into a into a corner, which is an unusual thing. And so I think the Wagner Group, beyond the military yeah. advantage that An- An- Andy mentioned, he's exactly right. The rank disregard for international law is a perfect description of that organization. Um, in addition, I think they're beginning to to spread. The, the kind of uh, dissent inside the, the Russian government against the current leadership of the, of the military. I will say the military didn't plan on Wagner. The Russian military did not plan mm. on Wagner coming in. You're absolutely right. They're brought in later when Zelensky was, se- became to be seen as a center of gravity for the Ukrainian, mil- you know, uh, government, uh, with his performance. They were sent in to assassinate him. That's true. Their original plans were to use their own Spetsnats to grab the airfield just outside of uh, Ukraine, outside of Kiev, I mean. And, and, and had they been successful in that, we might have seen a different war, hmm. a much more, uh, you know, a much shorter war and a much more negative war for the Ukrainians. But the failure of the, that along with some other failures that subsequently happened with the, with the Russian army led to the need for the Wagner group to start getting involved. Yeah, I just, one more word I want to say, just because it, it intrigues me about Yevgeny Prigozhin, who is the, uh, as you say, the head of the who started. He's, he's described as a Russian businessman and close associate of Putin, but he was he was a caterer and at a chef, and he has created these great banquets yep. for Putin. And there's just something I find really interesting about the concept of a villain who, in his spare time, is a chef and a gourmet. Well, and, and by the way, I just. It, Daniel probably won't remember this, but you guys may. There used to be a, it was a book and a movie called The Marathon Man. Oh, yes. With very d- much movies so, yeah. with Dustin Hoffman. Daniel, you've seen it? Daniel's seen it. So, but if, what, if you remember, the villain in that is a Nazi 
dentist. That's right. Which yeah. is such a wonderful yeah. concept. That, so that I, feeds on everyone's most, one of the yeah. most primal food. You live in your mouth. You live right? in your mouth. So having a chef caterer, a villain, uh, somebody should do the movie. I wish I could do it. Yeah. So if you read the Panama Papers, uh, I mean, if you look at the Panama Papers, the, the illegal Russian money uh, that was stored there, you're going to find out that almost, you know, not just his chef, but his, uh, you know, his gardener, his dog walker, you know, pretty much everyone <laughs> around Putin is apparently worth, you know, seven to ten billion dollars, right? And so, but he's really broke out. You're right into this independent um, responsibility, and and the Wagner Group. While the whole story's funny, the Wagner Group is is a group I I try not to laugh. And didn't at. a bunch of Wagner Group guys get killed in Syria by the American Special Forces? There wasn't that. Wasn't weren't those Wagner Group guys? Go ahead. They were. Yeah. yeah. They, the actually that's a that's a great example. Of the fact, you know, we we seem to have escalophobia uh, when it comes to Putin's decision making. But you look at two <laughs> times, you look at two times we really has been confronted, yeah. or it's, someone's calling it his bluff. First time was in 2015, I think it was uh, November or December. The Turks shot down a plane that yeah, came into that. no fly zone, and there was a lot of yeah. posturing before that. Putin threatening what would happen if that was going to happen, and of course he backpedaled after that and reached out to Erdogan. Same thing with the loss of between 250-300. Thinly disguised, I mean, well, Russian contractors, we already mentioned their proxies of the Russian government. Um, unconfirmed reports that there were actual Russian military personnel also among those casualties. And yet, uh, Grasimov right afterwards, again, is, is, he, he wants to talk. He's, you know, backpedaling. So it clearly no one's really reading the tea leaves and what motivates and does not motivate Putin when we talk about policy. And we should mention that Wagner Group have been in Donbass, um, since 2014, yeah. since yeah, 2014, yeah. people remember was when Putin, Annexed, you know, took, conquered and annexed Crimea and also began essentially a, an insurrection in Donbass, eastern parts of Ukraine bordering on Russia that has lasted all these years until this most recent invasion when essentially Putin said, I'm taking it. I'm ta I'm not going to do yeah. any more salami slicing. I'm taking and, a whole enchilada. And it's That's kind of it. interesting. I mean, he had not noticed the way the environment had changed so quickly. And I'm getting to a point actually that, that Mark made here. Uh, it, you know, everything from the intelligence reports, he hadn't noticed about kind of the overhaul of the Ukrainian military. And he, and, you know, on the human level, he was, he totally misjudged the mood of the Ukrainian population, the reception. I mean, so massive intelligence uh, failure. I would imagine, you know, Mark mentioned the Wagner group as being a uh, now kind of a not a voting block, but a, a an influential block, right? Because they have stepped in to cover shortfalls within the Russian army. Uh, you've also got the Chechens uh, who have shown their loyalty to the plan to to invade Ukraine, which is amazing, by the way. Yeah, I and, start, and I mean, also, just just people remember there were two Chechen wars. The city yeah. of Grozny was razed to the ground. The Chechens are are a, a distinct people. They've been impressed, and yet, and the kind of quizlings among them totally side with Putin and are really thrilled to come down and slaughter Ukrainians if they can. That's a great privilege for them. And not only that, within the, the Russian military, they have a loyalist status. So if you notice, you talk, and if you, you reading or listening to interviews on the BBC's Ukraine cast, they're talking to the, the residents of Kherson, all these areas. Russian soldiers are no longer allowed into those towns. It's Chechens. Kherson and, is yeah. mostly Chechens. Well, who the, the guys who are allowed to go into the town, they're uh, either the uh, 
you know, the Donetsk People's Republic or their mm. um, or their, their Chechens. So it's kind of it's kind of strange. You got the Russian hierarchy within the army, and yet the people they trust most are the, not even Russians. And people should know, you know, there are two important battles taking place. I would say as we're recording this, yeah. one is Kherson, and that's in the south. And if the Russians would take Kherson, and they they would try to move to Odessa, and that would be disastrous because in the southern border, uh, the, the, the southern Ukraine on the Black Sea would be taken. But if the Ukrainians can push the Russians out of Kherson or to defeat them there, that's a huge advance. The other big battle is, as you say, Donbass and Kharkiv, which was a city where which Putin, again, thought would from whatever intelligence he had would be would be pro-Russian because yeah, yeah. most people there are Russian speakers, not Ukrainian speakers. But most people there said, I don't care what language I speak. I'm Ukrainian, not Russian. I'm not reporting to the Kremlin. I like the fact that I have freedom and I can vote for my leader rather than accept Putin and kiss his ring. Am I, am I correct on all that? Yeah. And, and I know, you know, Mark and I will get into probably talking about the war itself, but I will add yeah. one thing that kind of pulls it together. When we talk, you know, bottom line is this. I believe there's going to be Ukrainian victory eventually but it's going to be a long, bloody uh, struggle. And how bloody it's going to be does depend on some policy clarification in the U.S. And that we will will definitely come back to. That's premise, uh, yeah. Yeah, Um, That's premise number one. Premise number two is the only thing that it's going to prevent this being a long, bloody struggle is some kind of black swan event, all right? Black swan event, um, someone someone overthrows, which is going to have to mean kills Putin, and that gets two marks point now you're signing i'm not saying it's going to happen but i'm saying it's no longer inconceivable you're hearing rumblings from former loyalists from military blog bloggers obviously we're not hearing rumblings within the army because we're not positioned to do so but i'm sure i'm sure leadership of the russian army not particularly happy you know, they've lost x number of generals um you know even the most conservative estimates more troops than they lost in 10 years in afghanistan they, they're in shit state. I don't know if I can say that. You can say that. Cliff, you're right uh, about Kherson. I mean, when I think about it, and Andy and I have both been down there, the topography of the southern, you know, the Black Sea yeah. coast of Ukraine lends itself to fast movement. And Kherson and then Nikolaev next to the two blocking functions right now. Kherson preventing Ukraine from moving quickly toward, back towards Mariupol, re-isolating uh, Crimea and making things really hard on Russia. Or... Conversely, Kherson rolling into Nikolaev, which is a straight run then to Odessa, really placing the 80% of maybe even higher now percent of GDP that that, uh, Ukraine is generating from occurring. I mean, this is for both of them, that's an existential challenge. And so the, the Ukrainians have done a great job bolstering Nikolaev, holding it off after uh, Kherson was lost, and now pushing back in. And it's going to be hard. And this really, we learned earlier, Russian logistics at distance does not function well. Mm-hmm. And Kherson mm-hmm. is a long way away from a traditional Russian logistics line. So I think the Russians are in real, tr- are in real trouble. Especially here. with the uh, Kursk Bridge damaged well, at least. And let me just explain, listeners who haven't been in yeah. the weeds as, uh, as we have, what we're talking Crimea was annexed by Russia, but there is no land bridge to Crimea from Russia. So what there is is a man-made bridge, which, as you just mentioned, was bombed and not destroyed, but severely damaged, making it difficult. And, you know, initially, a lot of people thought this was going to be a minor incursion, which might mean, for example, that, all right, 
Putin's going to take Donbass, where he's been meddling for her since 2014, and he's going to find his way to get a land bridge to Crimea and then say, that's enough. You guys denounce me, and then let's go back to trading, right? It's all over with. Again, salami tactics, and I'll, you know, you, you let me do what I did in 2014. You let me slice off two pieces from Georgia in 2008. That's enough. But of course, he decided to do more than that. But this is, but this is important. If he doesn't have a land bridge and he has only a, a broken man-made bridge to Crimea, now it gets hard to supply, for example, Mark, the Navy at Sevastopol, his Navy, because that's where his Black Sea Navy is based, was, by the way, we should mention, under Ukraine. Ukraine leased Sevastopol as a Navy base to Russia. Fine. You guys want your base here? Fine. No problem. That wasn't good enough for Putin. Do I got that right? You got it right. I, I think, you know, the willingness to lease that is, you know, uh, was was probably tied directly to okay. their desire to get out of the Soviet Union, right, at the right, time. So, right. um, but having having said that's all uh, accurately descriptive, and and I will tell you, um, you know, the 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 battle in Kherson is, I think, you know, the center of gravity to getting to a solution, um, or to causing a black swan event. You know, mm. I think a, a big loss there that then started to push back down that land bridge. There's going to be a lot more complaining in Russia. All right. Well, listen, we'll, I want to get back to the, the the state of the war and, and outcomes. But I, but first, let me let you talk a little bit about how the Mozart Group got into being what you do. In the, you've got a website, themozartgroup.com. I want to direct people to it. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, please do. Actually, and there's a donate and a join button. And so everyone who visits that site should make one of those choices. It's very binary. <laughs> oh, oh, join, so, join in the sense of yeah. not just being a supporter, but like putting on a flak jacket. Exactly. And yeah. going to Coming Ukraine. out and join okay. us. Yeah. So if you <laughs> if you're hard up, at least you you know you can offer yourself. Right. Okay. Yeah. So back in early March is when I arrived out in Ukraine. At the time, I was a freelance journalist. I'm laughing because I'm sure it's very second rate freelance journalist not without a lot of waster. I, I wrote four or five articles, which I think was kind of my remit, and then realized that I felt quite trivial hanging around in Kiev when it was, I mean, it's hard to imagine now, but about 20% of the population was left. The city was indeed surrounded on three sides and being bombarded, not just with rockets, missiles, but also artillery. I mean, the Russians were that close. There was fighting taking place in Urpin and Bucha and uh, and the western suburbs. So it was quite a, you know, there's a feeling of in extremists there. Mm -hmm. And there was a a large population, not the, well, a fairly large population of brand new soldiers, the Territorial Defense Force, and they've been tasked with the defense of Kiev. Defense of Kiev was not, the Kiev was defended not by professional soldiers, almost to a man. It was, it, it were these reservists who, who had, most of them had no training at all. Um, and they we were know trained that. by U.S. Uh, Reserve Special Forces. I thought no, were, no, 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 no. Okay. These weren't. I mean, these were these guys were students or yeah. butchers, bakers, candlestick makers. One <laughs> week before, and then you know, yeah. Zelensky passed that edict that they handed out AK-47s on the streets of uh, Kiev <laughs> to everyone with a Ukrainian passport between eighteen and sixty. So it's really they. It was that kind of feeling. Yeah. And when we said, "Hey, we can train these guys. Give us five days." Um, there was tremendous amount of enthusiasm. Of course, five days is not enough, but it's at least enough to teach someone how to move, how to you know how to communicate, how to shoot, um, and to treat each other. You know, if they get hit, how to fire an anti-tank guided missile. Um, and we did. We set up this training at the time. It's about five or six of us happened to be former Marines, uh, and then we lowered our standards a little bit. Started taking in Navy and, and uh, Army SF guys. 
but the but that that core group we were we were doing a very uh, I mean it was yeah. it sounds crazy now it was we're doing a a of uh, like short order five day hit you know from civilian to soldier uh, now here's your gear and go and fight in the, uh, the Russians and they would they get in their their POVs as the civilian cars and drive up to to open. And we'd get instant feedback too. They'd come back the next day and say, "Hey, you know, <laughs> <that's>, uh, <laughs> um, some amusing stories." There was one guy we could not train to shoot a weapon. He was so cack-handed. He he played in a band beforehand um, at college, um, and so in the end, his platoon commander just gave him a bag of grenades and said, "Just carry, take these." And he came back yesterday with an empty bag. He said, "This was awesome. So much easier than shooting." <laughs> Yeah. I, I think, you know, yeah. A, they were caught up in the moment. Yeah. And yeah. B, with their own families and, and buildings behind them. I mean, their homes, they, they, there was no sense of fear. But interestingly enough, no, the, the morale was sky high. There was never a doubt in their minds that they would throw the Russians back. And I think that counts for a lot. A bunch of questions with me, but also just say you, you've done some very good journalism. I know you have. You've written for The Atlantic. You've written for War on the Rocks. You've written for Task and Purpose, which is a publication read not least by my son, who's an infantry, so really? infantry officer. Excellent. Uh, and you've got a memoir titled When the Tempest Gathers. So people should also, you know, Buy that and, and read Please that. Please do, yeah. yeah. I get uh, 10 cents for every book sold on Amazon. Hey, that, you know, we've, got, we've got so many <laughs> listeners, this will make you a millionaire in no time. Um, so you have two things. So once you put together this group, I mean, now you have to recruit soldiers. I know you got, you got soldiers from 11 different countries, yeah. a lot of Americans, not only. And you've got to tell them, okay, we got to put together a five-day course so people can go out and actually be in combat and maybe come home alive. I mean, just give a sense yeah, of how I that mean, works. Really, what I tell people quite rightly is I did not form this group. It kind of formed around me. Huh. And huh. Uh, and the first group of guys we had were clearly very – they were people either we knew or we knew of them, uh, Brits and, and U.S. And we had such high-quality guys. We then figured out, okay, how do we replicate this and keep these guys, yeah. You know, which has to do with raising funds so yeah. we can pay them at least a stipend or something yeah. to live on, um, but also heavy – heavy attention paid to recruiting. So here's a problem with private military companies. It's not just the Wagner Group. It's U.S. private military companies too, British. They have over the years acquired a reputation that is that understandably makes policymakers nervous, Mm -hmm. all right? Um, So I I would argue uh, without without any hyperbole. I mean, that's – when we look at what what is our niche in this market, there's two things. One is within – Ukraine itself, we're the only organization that is training soldiers right behind the front line, so within Russian artillery range, um, number one. But I think number two, more importantly, is kind of our collective emotional intelligence. We don't carry weapons. Hmm. We realize there's no need to. It's bad for their, you know, optics, as we, as we say, mm-hmm. because we're not doing anything outside the bounds of U.S. foreign policy. Um, we can get away with uh, training an entire company with just – Five or six of our guys and enough interpreters because we have yeah. guys who are multiple, multiple skilled and used to teaching across the, you know, the kind of the cultural divide. So all these things are intangible, but they're immensely important when you're establishing a brand and a reputation. 
Yeah, it sounds like a logistic. Well, it sounds tricky with the linguistics. You've got Estonians. You've got. A, not, I mean, there's not one language that everybody. Speaks. I guess Eng- yeah. is English the best lingua franca. Oh yeah, yeah. That? I mean, we yeah, we absolutely. No one goes secure, as we say, and starts speaking their own language when we're operating together. <laughs> I mean, Cliff, the, the reason I think they all speak English is because of our shared experience in Iraq and Afghanistan. Almost all the people Andy's using are people who trained with us yeah. and fought with us and English became the, you know, that became the your ticket you know, yeah, into the game okay. as a, as a, uh, as an Estonian soft or Polish soft or something like that. So I do think we have that advantage. Now your students, mm. that's a different yeah, kind yeah, of I mean, fish. You have to, in, in this business, and this is something we, we do a number of things very badly in the business of building partner capacity in the U.S. military. We don't know how. We never build – we do a series of training things. Um, but we also don't understand the power that a good interpreter brings. You can't – you know, you've got to – I mean, this sounds simplistic, but when you are training and you're doing – you're zero, teaching someone how to zero their weapons, which is a totally new concept for 90%. To zero so, their weapons? To zero their weapons, Meaning? right? So align the sights and and the ballistic functioning of their weapon with their with their eyes so that – They've got a reasonable expectation. If they point at something, they're going to shoot it. Or, or everything else being correct, all right, if, they're, they're, if they are holding that weapon, they're doing everything correct, it'll hit the target. There's no – everything, mechanical deviations being accounted for. That makes it sound more complicated. Yeah. But remember, every Marine in the Marine Corps has to do this, so it can't be that complicated. But it's something that is a game changer right. in marksmanship, right? Right, right. Um, so um, – Two things on that. One is uh, I should – the New York Times did a feature on you. I used to work at the New York Times as a foreign correspondent, editor, right? A reporter. Oh, uh, I, I have my my differences with them nowadays, but there wasn't. It was a pretty good feature. I mean, it seems like what did they treat you fairly? Fair, yeah, Jeffrey uh, <laughs> Jeffrey Gettleman yeah. is the guy who wrote that. Uh, strangely enough, I'd, I'd read his book before I even met yeah. him. He wrote a great memoir about his time as. Africa correspondent for the Times. I was an Africa correspondent for the Times. Were you really? Yeah. You should read his book. I guess I should. Yeah. I would read. It'll make ten cents. Okay. You know, it's a good. It, so I knew of him, and then uh, he was. He's also a friend of a friend. Uh. So I was introduced, and it never really. It it was never never really felt like hey Jeffrey's writing this article it was Jeffrey and his cameraman and his security yeah. guy hung around with us for a while and brought us. Uh, you know, it kind of it seemed as though a lot of bad luck. Although Jeff, you'll forgive me for <laughs> as he accompanied us, we were strafed by an SU twenty five, caught in a uh, a grad far for effect, and it was almost as though it was all manufactured by him to get this great story. <laughs> was his security guy carrying a weapon? No, no, no. All right, no. otherwise that could have been the problem. Yeah, <laughs> you know, one thing I want to point out because uh, Cliff, you mentioned earlier, you asked if they were, had been previously trained by the United States, and I think that hits an important point here. Uh, Mozart Group's filling a gap, right? There's this gap. There's the Ukrainian army and the former Ukrainian army soldiers, a large percentage of which have been trained by U.S. or NATO forces at training facilities we built outside Lviv in uh, 2020 after the uh, illegal annexation of Crimea. We, and as you know, we've, uh, Brad Bowman from our team has talked with General Dan Hokinson, who's head of the National Guard, who, you know, told the story of, you know, almost a thousand touch points. That means a thousand different training events from squad to platoon to even company level. So I think, you know, where the United States made its impact was kind of where we would expect them to on current and former 
Ukrainian, um, you know, uh, active duty service members. That's who I think we made the impact on. But of course, that's not who's much more than that is required. I mean, that, that total is probably a over totality, a hundred thousand Ukrainians. But, you know, in the end, three, four, five, six hundred thousand Ukrainians are eventually going to have to hold that AK 47. And over time, and many have and have left, you know, have cycled through this, and some have been injured and wounded. Uh, so what yeah, and killed? So tremendous attrition uh, on on the Ukrainian side too. Much is made of the Russian side, but think about this. So back in May, Zelensky said that we're losing fifty to one hundred guys a day yeah. in Donbass alone. Right? That um, New York Times did a, I thought a pretty well researched article afterwards that said that numbers near at one hundred to two hundred. Okay, the height of the Vietnam War with 400,000 guys in the field, uh, Americans, the, uh, there was one week where the U.S. lost, one week, 200 guys. And that was big news. That was, hey, we can't sustain this. So you think an army uh, 40% smaller, that many in one day, possibly, at least that many in two days by the president's own admission day after day. And you can see why. They have a regeneration problem. They haven't gone to general mobilization. Their problem is, though, getting the guys who are volunteering. They have no shortage of volunteers, getting them trained, equipped, and in uniform because they have no one to do it. All their instructors, everyone went to the wall. Spend a moment on uh, on, on the training of Russian soldiers because Putin has done a recent call up of basically three hundred thousand. Yeah, say he's going to bring it, bring in. Yeah. I think they also are getting about a week's worth of training. Um, my impression is that the training, and I've read various, is not very good. That yeah, these guys I'm, are going to be cannon fodder, or the Russian phrase, by the way, is more colorful. It's cannon meat. Is yeah. what the Russians call it. Yes, sadly uh, true. Um, but that's what you understand too. These guys are coming in either from prisons or from the uh, as many as possible from prisons. When, and I, I think you've talked about the prisoners are not great, uh, are great, not do not make great soldiers <laughs> because they have a problem with authority. Um, they bring in, of course, people from the boondocks whenever they can. Yeah. Minorities. People don't realize that a lot of Russian people who are called Russians are not Russians by ethnic by ethnicity. They're Central Asians or Asians. Um, and now, but more and more, they're being grabbed off the street in places like Moscow and Petersburg, and uh, but they, and they're reluctant to go. So they're probably n- not re- eager to be trained. And from what I hear, and again, enlighten me, they're not trained all that well to go into combat. In yeah, the, the, training the Russian soldiers certainly has been a, an, an endemic uh, flaw that's come out in this morale and a lot, a lot of other things. Um, you know, clearly the, the reforms that supposedly be taking place in the military since 2008 were – on paper only and the problem and we've got some great russia analysts in think tank land but in the end where do they get their information it's from the russian it's russian army right so you know we propagated this 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 image however and and yes russian soldiers turned out to be really bad but we've got to be careful of overstating that because the russians do a number of things very well very good at artillery very good at counter-battery fire we, you know, we've seen within, if we're near a, a, a Ukrainian mortar or, or artillery position, they fire, we're moving as fast as we can because the standard is within four minutes. Mm. You start getting, seeing rounds coming in. They're very good at electronic attack now. They can go, they can jam, barrage jam an entire area very effectively. They cut down, I mean, obliterate communications between Ukrainian military. I know because we can't use our own radios as soon as we start getting near the, the front. And they can shift from that very quickly to point jamming, bring down drones and such. Um, and they've got some good infantry units. You know, we uh, mm. saw a, a 
prisoner the other day, um, one of our partner brigades, and uh, they were like, yeah, this dude is definitely, he's been trained to resist interrogation. He's mm. got, you know, he's very well equipped. He's got all this stuff. Uh, so there are, there are units there that are that that are certainly worth something. Um, sorry, go ahead. No, a couple of thoughts on that. So first, you're absolutely right, Cliff. It's great to watch Russian TV showed Putin, you know, at a training facility, and then these guys. First of all, clearly previous soldiers, and you know, incredibly fit. You know, if, if we'd uh, if they'd been in their t-shirts, we might have seen the you know the army tattoos on them. <laughs> but they were. Uh, in perfect gear, all the battle rat, all the, you know, Kevlar, they needed all the uniform. They had, they had a, um, you know, a, a, a rucksack laid out with everything they need. And Putin, you know, kind of hugged them all, did his, uh, did his thing. And then, uh, then the next day you can see Twitter, uh, you could, you could see, uh, Twitter stories from soldiers like, well, here's the camp I'm in. They go around. There's like three yeah. pair, three pairs of boots for 50 guys, <laughs> four guns. No one gets to shoot around. And the next, you know, now they're being frog marched and thrown on a train to get down to the front. And, and I think I look at the Russian army as three distinct units. One is the high end units. Uh, you know, both their special forces and some of their infantry. And, and Andy's right. Some of them have got that right. Those tend to be Russian, ethnic Russians and career soldiers. The next group are the ones they've kept out, out east for them. And those guys have now are being brought into the war. And I think that they're, they're a little cannon foddery. And, and again, talk about infantry, not artillery and EW. And then the third group is going to be this group of 300,000 or maybe a hundred thousand that really yeah, generates yeah. out of it. And I think they're going to be even worse, but, but their job, those last two groups job is to move on the field after artillery has been successful. And I, and I think that's why we sometimes we get fixated with like high Mar- I love high Mars and I love really the Gimler's, Get guided missile launcher round system that go with it. That's the actual round. Some that of the impacts. best weapon systems we've been we've been giving the Ukrainians. The, the, it's certainly the highest, longest range, and highest technology weapons we've given them. But the it's oh, equally important is that we've given them twenty times as much, you know, M one seventy seven, you know, uh, uh, field artillery, and the counter battery radars that go with it. And that's where. The Russian four minutes, I'm hoping, is a Ukrainian two minutes, mm, where yeah. they see a Ukrainian a Russian yeah. round come out and their counter batteries going down. It's really, they, I really like what what you said. the the problem The problem with us in the in the West in the United States, we're we're notoriously prone to this. We fall in love with platforms, and everything becomes about platforms. From you know, revolution of military affairs to now recognition that that drones, you know, drones and and weapon systems like Attackums. Uh, mm-hmm. or the they don't have attackums yet. <laughs> but but uh, they may, and I know a, Mark yeah, they, thinks they should. <laughs> yeah, they yeah. give us a tremendous capability, but in the end, it's, you've, it, it's the, the ability to conform, to understand what these things do. And what they do is simply what every, every army has sought to do throughout the history of warfare. That is gain standoff. Gain standoff from seeing, gain standoff from killing. Explain what standoff is. Standoff it is means the, seeing the enemy before he can see you, here. fixing and then killing him before he can see you. And so everything that enables you to do that are tools, but figuring that out and how to do that is the machines can never can never take the place. It's my little – that's not my anti-technology piece. I'm a big believer in technology. Um, so, you know, on getting back to – what what Mark was saying, which he's absolutely right. So what the Russians have done, as whatever our impressions of their army as being a paper tiger, they have adapted. 
Okay, and, and one example is there are tactics, right? Now, and unfortunately, we've seen this in person, the, the means of advancing, and they continue to advance in Donbass, which which I'll, I will suggest, despite what the Institute of Study Warfare says, shows that Putin does understand his strategic goals and what he needs to do. But my point is that the Russians continue to advance the way they do it. They obliterate a town with artillery and airstrikes, rubble it completely till nothing can remain in there except within the cellars. And uh, they just keep pounding it. And then eventually they move in with their infantry when they are convinced that the Ukrainians have withdrawn. This, I guess, this, this shocks me a little bit because if there's something I was I saw wrongly, I thought, okay, I understand Putin doesn't mind rubbling Aleppo, a great Middle Eastern city, historic. He doesn't care. I understand he doesn't mind rubbling Grozny, this is, these are the Chechens. He's got to show them who's boss. I somehow thought because he believes that Ukrainians are really Russians, even if they're rogues, even if they're separating from the family in a way they shouldn't, even whatever, that he wouldn't want to rubble Ukrainian cities quite the way. Also because he wants to take them over and he wants to utilize them. And of course, I, and this may, and this, and this gives me a fear as things, if things get bad for him of what he might do to Kiev. You know, or Odessa, or you know, but this is where I thought he might have more restraint. So, so you have to break out Putin in February, March, and Putin today. Putin in February, March did want to take Kiev clean. That's why he failed to do the appropriate cyber and kinetic attacks on the on the electrical power grid as he as he moved in. You know, to um, as opposed to he did a wonderful attack on Viatel. Their their battlefield communicate the satellite system through which the Ukrainian military talked. They did, they did an exquisite attack on that the night before the invasion that really paralyzed communications. It, it, it shifted communications to cell phones, which is doable, but suboptimal, but he didn't do all the attacks you'd expect on the critical infrastructure. Cause I think he thought he was going to seize an airfield quickly with Spatsnats intimidate the Ukrainians into a quick capitulation. That's, Putin of, of February, March. I think Putin of, of, uh, October, November is very comfortable, uh, rubbling these cities. By, by the way, Cliff, remember, these are Nazis. Yeah. All right. I remember his description now is not, uh, Russian brothers, right? Mm-hmm. I think we, he's moved beyond that. So I, I think that, I think, and, and he's right that we're going to see more of this. And should it ever come down to Putin versus a big city, the big city will be rubbled. And what, and one thing we do is we look at, well, first of all, and I understand this totally. When you write an article in think tank land, you have to make a point, right? <laughs> yeah. Either Ukraine or Russia's on the upper hand. And, and the answer is infinitely more, more complex, you know, as we can talk about. Yeah. But I, I would argue that despite what everyone's saying, Putin may not be strategically in such a bad position. Everyone's throwing up their hands going, why, why does he keep plugging away at Donbass? Well, because you look at when, when he said, Hey, we no longer want Kiev. He said, we're going to, we're going to keep Donbass and we're going to expand. He's already said that. He has to do that. And if he does, and if he can hold on to that southern strip, and he's got every reason to now to to say, as as winter approaches at the G22 summit, and, and he's cranking up the pressure on gas with, with France and Germany, who are already wavering, by the way, and already hinting that maybe now's the time to start negotiating. I think you're going to find him driving hard for a a black swan solution that has Germany and France really putting the screws on Zelensky. Okay. And, and I'm, I want you to talk about Germany, France, and the UK and their policies. But I think before you do, give, you know, evaluate a little bit the Biden administration's policies vis a vis Ukraine and vis a vis Russia. Yeah. 
I, you know, I, I, it's not, I, I know earlier in the conflict, I sounded quite adversarial, <laughs> but it wasn't that I was necessarily opposed to the US government's policy. It was, I just didn't understand it. It, it felt, we're either in or we're not in. We're in, we, we're going to, we're in, but we're going to give them obsolete towed artillery, not HIMARS, because HIMARS might give them too much of an edge, which would piss Putin off and might be, you, you see what I'm saying? I we do. were metering. We give them 113s for Christ's sake. I mean, this, it's, we've, we've just had demonstrated. Those what, are armored personnel yeah. carriers of a dated, uh, yeah. vintage. We've, we've just seen demonstrated how even high end T90s get eviscerated by ATGMs. And what do we do? We give them a ton of, uh, 113s. So my point is simply this, yeah. Cliff. It's, I, I understand that US government is saying we're all in support of Ukraine. But when you watch what is happening, what is being meted out, why why give them HIMARS, right? And but not ATACMS, which is the the missile that that ranges three hundred kilometers. So now they can range what we've given them ranges fifty kilometers, just a little bit further than Russian artillery. You know what the Russians have done? They adapt. They start splitting their batteries, moving their guns forward, and they're splitting their ammunition dumps. So this is a problem with getting too focused on platforms, but it's also a problem with this, this strange, these strange red lines that we as a nation perhaps are forming about what is going to upset Putin. Well, I think, I mean, that, as a denizen of the think tank land, and you, and you are too much, I think that with what Biden and uh, his advisors believe they're trying to do is say, okay, we have to help the Ukrainians defend themselves, but we want to be careful not to provoke Putin too much. They didn't want to initially listen. They didn't want to provoke Putin at all, and now they want to they, yeah. because they're listening. But, but He's worried about floor? Armageddon. He said Cliff, that to his donors. What's the floor in that argument? Yeah. Yeah. What's the floor in that argument? You, I mean, you, oh. the, you're trying to guess where his red line is, and you're saying, "Well, well, we're gonna, we can kill you guys if we just kill you guys at 50 kilometers. We're not going to kill you at 300, right? It doesn't really matter, right?" But it matters. It makes a world of a difference to the Ukrainians. Yes. Go ahead. I know you have so thoughts cynical, on this, Mark. I would say, uh, I would if say you the, were cynical. Oh, if okay. I was cynical, right. I'd say the Biden administration's <laughs> plan is to is to defend Ukraine to the last Ukrainian. Yeah. Um, leave uh, Russia dry. Yeah. yeah. But I actually see – so here's how I think we – you know, Brad and I have written about this a lot, Brad Bomer and I. And, you know, we kind of say, look, we f- – De- uh, the president kind of famously said in late February, deterren- deterrence failed. And and I think in, in, in this case, and what I would say is we failed to effectively take the steps necessary to deter Russia in 2021. I blame the Biden administration for that. 2020, 2019, I blame the Trump administration for that. You can go back to 2014, 15, blame the Obama administration for that. I think we had eight years of certain knowledge that that more steps were coming. And over that whole time, we gave less than a billion dollars worth of gear. Mm. And in the very mm-hmm. end, starting in December of 2021, and the wasn't particularly yeah. impressive. Either. And, yeah, and, and I mean, remember javelins. Uh, Obama for four years, you know, run, or I guess three years, wrung his hands on, on javelins and never gave them. Trump said, "I'm going to give them." Then he then he had some questions about Burisma and Hunter Biden, and he delayed a few years. He finally gave them, though, to his credit, and Biden gave more. Although but we by one point said, if you don't fire this prosecutor, you're not going to get any more weapons from me. That's Remember right. That? I think, yeah, Trump yeah, as, said that. As, yeah. No, as, vi- as vice president. Oh, as vice president. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Vice, you're right. You're, yeah, exactly. So Biden, Trump, Obama, all yeah. poorly oh, yeah. deterred. The blame is purely bipartisan. Yeah, I quite <laughs> but, agree But if you that, go yeah. forward now, I, I actually have a more positive take on Biden. First of all, Biden's release of classified uh, communications in December, January, and February created the Coalition of the Willing. 
our European allies would have been happy to have no discussion and avert their eyes. Maybe not the UK and not Eastern Europe, but you know, yeah. the, the, the the you know uh, Germany uh, and France for, for sure. And um, and so I'm very comfortable with what he did there. I think that was good leadership by him, Avril Haines, Jake Sullivan, whoever cooked that up. By the way, the only yeah. problem with that may just play, is he's saying, here's what Putin's going to do. Here's what Putin's going to do. And that tells her. But he's also saying to Putin, I think you're going to do it because why wouldn't you? I'm not telling you there's any real price yeah. to pay. But again, you know, Cliff, here's, here's us tripping ourselves up over Putin. Uh, and they, it, I, I, I agree with what you know Mark's saying. I mean, it's very easy to yeah. – there were things that were done correctly and there were things that – but – but my my comment still remains. Let's be all in, all out. If we're concerned about striking Russia, well, NATO's already has that criteria for NATO for a NATO equipment that is given to Ukraine. Ukraine's not, Zelensky is not going to bite the hand that feeds him and and take something that we have and strike. But Russia. you're not suggesting American troops be deployed or that oh, NATO no. to go. Oh, no, no, this no, is no. still oh, this yeah, is yeah. still fighting Russia through a proxy, yes, which 100%. is the Ukraine. We are. They, you see, you're yeah. exactly right. Okay. This isn't even – we're not talking about a major policy change. We're right. talking about how the policy is executed. And so I, uh, the the longer-range artillery is the big – so I do support, I think, the 16, 17 billion in military gear we've given overall 40 billion between military and economic support is absolutely appropriate and the right thing. Um, but in addition, you know, what we could be doing is giving more capable systems – that allow the Ukrainians to counter Putin's evolving strategies. Yeah. One of the problems here is that I think, just from my worm's eye view, there is no connecting direct connecting file at the worker bee level or the pro you know, call it what you will, between Ukrainian MOD and US government. So what that means is that this the stuff that we are providing is not based on any real uh, demand signal. Right. It's not or a specific demand signal. The, whereas the British and the French, so so the French have just given what, what, what's their uh, self to their self propelled artillery, the Caesar. See, it's a. I mean, it's a really capable system, and the French just basically gave to Ukraine about a quarter of their entire stock. Really? Why? Because Zelensky had said, or it was Zelensky, his uh, Ministry of Defense had said, "Hey, this is something we could really use." By the way, if I, if I were to try to defend the Biden administration on this, if I were Jake Sullivan, I think I might say something like this. Look, we're trying to signal to Putin that although we're supporting the Ukrainians, there clearly are limits and restraints, yeah. and we expect you to not only uh, see that and respect that, but to also have restraints. In other words, don't use tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Now, there's a lot of reasons why he shouldn't and why it's yeah. not a good idea but, militarily. But, but is that, that, in other words, he's signaling, yeah. we're only going so far, you only go so far, because if you, because this is the escalatory that's, ladder. That's negotiating from disadvantage because we're saying, yeah. we're talking to the leader of a, of a sovereign country who has invaded another sovereign yeah. country yeah, and yeah. is running ragged in the airs over that sovereign country yeah. and pulverizing its towns. And we're saying, hey, we don't want you to do anything that might be bad. Yeah. If we do this, it's like no. This you, 
But okay. I do give Biden a lot of credit. I mean, the place where I give him credit is, you know, I mean, I think Europe minus the UK and uh, and us is like, you know, some version of the Hanseatic League, you know, that really struggles to get to a military solution or anything. And he has he has rallied them. Look, they haven't given enough. I think what we'll see after our elections is probably a stronger push to make sure Europe is giving some. I like what Macron gave there, but that was you're exactly right. The result of a direct request yeah. for France to provide that. But I think in general. Lots of Western Europe needs to give, uh, again, omitting the UK, because I think they've given a lot, could give a higher percentage. And it, and, and if it turns out to be economic support more than, than, uh, military, I could live with that, but they've got to do more. And, um, and, but I give Biden credit because he has yanked them, you know, from the Hanseatic League back into, into NATO thing. And talk a little bit about Germany because early on I thought, okay, under Olaf Schultz, this is going to be a very different country than it was under Angela Merkel. And this is going to be good. And I've seen, it seems to me he's been going wobbly over the past few months. Is that how you see uh, it too? Until the, uh, actually the Putin played into, <laughs> Ukraine's hands again with the drone strikes and the uh, and the missile strikes on. If you look at the, and I'm I'm not a, a Germany watcher, but if you look at the rhetoric kind of coming out of the German government before and since then, and the Germans were the first to, along with the Norwegians, to offer a more advanced uh, air defense system. Oh, you know, no, go ahead. Yeah, Mark, so yeah, so. What I say on Germany's look, I think you know, Germany's in a tough position. They don't have, you know, they. They are not, uh, they're not actually very capable military despite spending. I mean, you can't spend $50 billion as effectively. If you look at how Germany spends $50 billion on defense, how Japan spends $50 on defense, and how Israel spends $30 billion on defense, <laughs> you'd say one of these things is not like the others. And it's the <laughs> German military, and they don't yeah. have an ethos of combat and readiness, and it pervades them. So, Honestly, and, and look, a lot of people are not that unhappy with Germany not having an ethos of of war fighting readiness. Yeah, but, but that raises a great two, record there. But that also does raise two points that that, that, that people people say, oh, uh, you know, Putin only did this because he was he he was afraid of NATO. Well, if you look at Germany and if you look at a lot of the you know the a lot of the NATO countries, there's nothing to be first of all it's a defensive alliance. Secondly, with the exception of with some exceptions, it's not a particularly capable alliance. So the idea, I mean, he who knows you can you can fear ghosts in your closet, but the idea that he feared NATO really makes no sense. Not if he understood yeah, anything about certainly. NATO. That's absolutely un, un, that, you just that you can't say he invaded Ukraine because he feared NATO. This yeah. was a defensive move. That people are saying that on the right and the left. Oh, yeah. Isolation yeah, I, I nonsense. Um, it, I mean, some arguments are just it's hard. It's hard even if you play devil's advocate yeah. as hard as you can. You can't dig up any logical foundation, and that just seems to be one. Now, they raise but, another point, which I which I wrote about this week, and I didn't get to bounce off you, that people say, well, we need to give Putin an off-ramp, right? An off-ramp. If he wants an off-ramp, there are people he would discuss that with, and they include Olaf Schultz, they include Emmanuel Macron, they include Silvio Berlusconi, who is his friend, they yeah. include Modi of India. There's a lot of people who could say, "Hey guys, get me out of this. Give me a give me a face saving way." And then, and so that's how the diplomacy I, would work. I, I think that's coming. I think you're going to see that. Well, if if he's rational and if he do, yeah. if doesn't want to die on this, you know, hill. I think he's got to win what you said, though. He's got to get back he's got of those hope. four, you know, autonomous yeah. areas that he's uh, that he's um, 
annexed. He's got to take back enough of them that that's, that he's negotiating no. for a position of strength. And on then he four. says, what, I'll, I'll agree to a ceasefire in place. Uh, in place and I'll agree to an armistice, not a peace agreement. And then, I mean, is that how you, is, 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 so I guess we were getting to. That's where you got to start. Get to uh, the point of. What are the possible outcomes? Because I hear people with some hysteria in their voice say to me, wait a minute, but what's the outcome? I mean, if it's not a diplomatic solution, what are we going to do? And what does it mean to win? And and I'm not saying we know exactly, but you obviously have some ideas that if he went to Silvio Berlusconi and said, my friend – Let's figure out a way to get me out of this, but I can't have I can't have a terrible loss. I can't I can't be the the defeated and humiliated dictator. That's not how this works for me. Uh, to answer your question, yeah. for for Ukraine to win, yeah, uh, aside from that black swan event of Putin being in, annihilated, the the only the only vision of Ukraine victory is every single Russian. Expelled from Crimea and, and Donetsk. That isn't me just doing crowdsourcing. I mean, you can listen to Zelensky. Oh, I know that's what Zelensky um, wants, but is that and, a negotiating position or an end position? about that is that the Ukrainians previously were kind of, after 2014, about Crimea, they're like, yeah, you know, because yeah, yeah. Crimea before 1954 was part of Russia, Russia, and then. And even by the way, a lot of Russia, a lot of Ukrainians after 2014 left. Crimea yeah. for Ukraine proper. A lot of Tatars, Tatars left because yeah. I've been in. I've been to. I've been to Ukraine more than once, and I've met in Kiev. People said, "Yeah, I wasn't going to live there under Russian rule. I le- I moved." But what has changed that now is that to a man and a woman now, you, it doesn't matter who you ask. They are. They're saying every Russian has to be expelled from to include Crimea, to include Donetsk Luhansk. That is. That's the hard part about this. Anything short of that, Ukrainians will see as defeat. And of course, Putin, anything short of being able to hold on to, uh, to the eastern province, Luhansk, Donetsk, and probably the majority of, uh, Zaporizhia and, and Kursan. That's, Kursan, so, so those I, I are, think, yeah. those are irreconcilables. And that is why I'm saying you need a black swan event to, to break <laughs> that. Um, so we don't see an outcome I, at this point. We don't no, see how this and, ends. And the longer, to your point about a ceasefire and armistice, the Ukrainians know that that is time for Putin to consolidate and get the Wagner Group up and running in Ukraine and causing all kinds of problems. And Ukraine's economy remains in the shit as as Russia gradually recovers. It's a it's a lose lose for Zelensky, and and uh, I think of the German Chancellor and the French president think otherwise. They really just aren't. They're not seeing it from Ukrainians. Well, but standpoint. at a certain point, though, they're going to say to Biden, look, if you want this to end, you have to allow Putin to save some face, which means you have to pressure Zelensky by telling him yeah. you're not going to support him beyond this. And you know what he wants, but he's not going to get everything he wants. Isn't that – I mean, isn't that how it goes? Well, for the U.S. point of view, then I'd say either – the answer is yes, we are all in to support Ukraine, in which case do so with the weapon systems and the assistance very quickly. Because we, we talked about platforms. They could also use assistance. Uh, and this and there's a, this is incumbent. There's a responsibility incumbent in the Ukrainians too to share more about what they intend to do to get a really good flow of, of intel going back and forth. Kharkiv, the breakthrough in Kharkiv, they got good intel because they did share what they were about to do. So mm. there's, there's a lot of other things U.S. can do um, really to uh, – on advice and assist effort to be on platforms to help Ukraine. So two thoughts. I really hope 
that Joe Biden and, and uh, Jake Sullivan are not waiting to listen to the German chancellor and the French president because, I mean, the German chancellor is like, is, uh, is having a hug fest with, uh, President Xi today. Yeah. Just yeah. a reminder, you know, President Xi who frog marched off Hu Jintao and, and has, you know, established an even thicker autocracy in China. But, um, the second part of it is, is I, I agree completely. We actually need to, improve what we're, we're providing to Ukraine. Right now, Ukraine, Russia in their kind of escalation and his new strategic thinking, Putin is hitting the electrical substations of Ukraine hard with cruise missiles, uh, mostly cruise missiles, a little bit of ballistic missiles and some drones. And we're providing NASAM systems, the National Advanced Surface Air Missile System. It's a joint Raytheon Kronigsberg of Norway system. Two of them are coming. It's what defends the White House, the National Capital Region, the White House, Congress, and the, and the and the Pentagon. We're sending two of those systems to Kiev. Should be there in about a week. They they've been in Europe for a month training Ukrainian um, uh, Ukrainian personnel. And at Raytheon, uh, the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense and Department of Defense have done a fantastic job getting them there. The problem, of course, is it's not actually designed to shoot down drones. It'll shoot down the other, the, the, uh, cruise missiles. And the S-300s are, are good with the ballistic and cruise missiles. And they, we've got to figure out how to, they've been shooting down some drones, uh, but a, a, a good number getting through and on the drone side. And so to do that, you know, we, uh, Brad Bowman and I have been pushing for what's called the uh, counter rocket artillery and mortar or CRAM system, which is a gun mounted on a truck. Uh, we've used it to defend our bases throughout Afghanistan and, and Iraq for the last, um, 20 years. We need to get a few of those systems to, uh, Ukraine in the next couple weeks or month. And, uh, and in the, and then later a system called Vampire. And this is what I don't like about Department of Defense and, and the White House. They'll say, Oh, wait, we're supplying the Vampire system. And then you read, you know, you have to read like on, you know, paragraph 62 of the announcement. It should be getting there within nine months. You know, you know, Zelensky doesn't have a nine month problem. He has a nine day problem yeah. or a nine week problem. And so we've really got to do a, a slightly better job on getting this more advanced systems into place and not, you know, you know, wringing our hands over this problem for a month or two months while Zelensky suffers. The power piece is, is huge, you know, in, and in the welter of, of publicity about drones and, and child strikes, there was a lot of talk about, oh, he's, you know, he's picking the civilian population. Of course, a number of those uh, having been in the city twice now, they, they, when when these attacks occurred, a number of them, there's no way that he was heading for anything other than residential areas. But uh, but as Mark commented, you know Zelensky's own admission is 30% of the country's power has been disabled through combination of cruise missiles hitting the uh, the power stations themselves. Famous uh, video of one hitting the Lviv power station just recently, and using these slower drones, very. By the way, very unsophisticated, but very effective because there's so many of them um, to hit the uh, substations. And he's knocked out. Uh, I forget how many substations, but enough, as you know, for there to be rolling blackouts across Ukraine now, um, eight hours a day in Kiev. And in the eastern provinces, they're almost permanently blacked out now. So my last question, though, feel free to use this opportunity to get into issues I should have raised and we didn't please do so. But I want you to reflect a little more on the end game, the exit strategy, the outcomes, because people worry about that. And maybe the answer is simply we don't know. And whichever side can endure stress and uncertainty better probably ends up winning. And I, because I'm sure Putin thinks I can take the stress and uncertainty. I'm a tough guy. And I don't think 
any of those Europeans are. I know them. I don't think Biden is. I can see what he's like. And that's how, and that, and at a certain point, that's how you win. I mean, it goes back to, you know, what Orwell said. Uh, if you, if you're, another quote exact, but if you, if you're eager to see a war end, the easiest way is to lose. So reflect on, on, on end games here and for a few minutes. <laughs> well, listen, I'll go first. And I'll, I, instead of talking about end games, I just want to mention one more time what Andy's been doing with, with the Mozart group. And then you can reflect on the end game, but <laughs> give your website one more time because this is important. The, the Mozart group is about, you know, we, comp- we were talking here about the high tech stuff the Biden administration needs to pass. There's still just this, you know, d- this incredible amount of support that needs to get into Ukraine and this training of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, previously untrained, um, you know, citizen soldiers and, you know, in five days is critical. Most because it helps keep them alive, but second, because it generates combat force, uh, for the Ukrainian army. And, uh, and I'll say this, uh, you know, when Andy worked for me for two years writing plans, I never thought he'd make a journalist. Um, <laughs> but I did know. I did know watching him. He's got a very wooden style of writing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Andy Hemingway, I'm Faulkner. Yeah, that's what it was. Uh, Andy was the uh, the the commander of the Marsoc Brigade and uh, and a senior leader in in CENTCOM, and and you knew he had the kind of vision uh, to identify that center of gravity that needs to get filled, and I think he and his team are filling it. So if you give us the Mozart Group one more time, and then give us your your game vision. Uh, You know, that's a very interesting thing that that uh, that that you said, Mark, because there's a guy named Mick Ryan. I don't know if either of you know him, uh, Australian guy, but actually very intellectual, which is a, a kind of an oxymoron. But uh, he went to, uh, he's a uh, oxymoron Australian. for Australian? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I meant because, anyway, he was a, uh, you know, he's an Australian soft guy. He went through the Marine School of Advanced Warfighting, so clearly a cut above. And he writes very well. Uh, and engagingly about military matters, Ukraine in particular, he wrote an article, I think it's for the Sydney Morning Herald. He was saying that this phenomenon, crowdsourced, donor, donor-supported private military organization with values still aligned with U.S. foreign policy, so plausible deniability for the U.S., and yet assisting a country, not technically an ally, but a partner, you know, it is... It, so his point is, this is viable. This is a viable entity going ahead. We've got to, we've got to, you know, kind of forget about our fears of Blackwater and mm-hmm. and do the the correct vetting, but push ahead and use this to a. Why not? I mean, I've got I've got six oh sixes alone. Not that that means anything. That's not even a fire team plus. But my point is six oh sixes alone, all of whom have held command at brigade level. Oh six is a six colonel colonel in the uh, Army uh, yeah. Marine Corps Air Force or, or captain in the Navy. Uh right. The Mozartgroup.com. And it, it, it yeah. certainly deserves deserves support from large donors and small we, and yeah. Because we don't just train, we didn't talk about this, but we we take we help evacuate people from the areas under a bombardment, and our niche there is with the only organization. There are loose groups of individuals who actually drive from what we call kind of the last safe town outside Russian artillery fire into towns to, to pull people out or to bring them food and water. This is a vital work, but I'm going to push you to give me just a few more seconds on poss- on outcomes and how you see it. Or you yeah, can yeah. say, oh, we don't know. Yeah, yeah. We just have to do the work and see yeah. what happens. Well, I don't know. But I think we've talked about the, you know, there's, there's a couple of Black Swan events when Putin gets yeah. overthrown or Putin or um, uh, Germany, France, 
getting the people on board and pressure Zelensky that less, less effective. Um, I think that I, aside from that, it's hard to envision a win on the battlefield alone without game changing, with some game changing technology and either effort. Side, yeah. Effort. Yeah. It really is. And that's the problem. That's why I can tell you, I don't know. Cliff, I'll give you two thoughts. One, it's going to be a tough winter, even if it's not winter, yeah. super cold. Yeah. Which it probably will be. Yeah. It's going to be a tough winter because this is where, you know, there's not exciting news that, you know, the United yeah. States has to be. We are historically are not the best persistent ally and friend. We tend to get excited at the front and, uh, you know, unhappy at the back. And then that middle, we got to do. So first we got to do that. The second is I'm very fearful that the planting season hasn't happened in Ukraine this year, which means next year's uh grain uh supply for the maghreb for for the middle east for africa is is going to be horrifically low and this is before the russians screw with the internal movement again in the spring uh the harvesting in the summer or the shipping in the summer and fall through the black sea so as bad as we thought grain was this year uh i think grain next year is going to be even worse for the world this has been fascinating, some ways distressing. I've learned a lot. Colonel, thank you so much for coming in and for sharing this with us. Really grateful. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been, it's been awesome. Man. Thank you, Mark. I always learn talking to you and I enjoy doing it. And thanks to all of you who have stayed with us for all this time. I hope you've learned a lot and I hope you've been fascinated too here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.